Good morning, Calvary. How are you? Good morning to our online listeners. We are glad you're here. Good to see some new eyes back every week. We get a few more people back, and uh, I'd love to see your faces, but obviously you're all wearing masks, and I appreciate that. We are starting a brand new series today called Saul Paul, and for those who don't know, Saul was a, and Paul are the same person, Saul was the name of a person who was very mean and attacking to Christians, and then he came to Christ, and then his life changed. And so I'm going to start by reading that in Acts 8, um, beginning in verse 17 through 20. We're going to go right into the scripture. It says this, Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at once something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time and immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. This is a dramatic story. This is the story that we all seem to share that, that says that we were somebody that was different before we found Christ. And then after we come to know Christ, a relationship with Him, our life should change. We begin to see the world differently. That's what we're going to talk about today as we go through this. But I want to start with telling you a little bit about my story, because we all have a story. Um, when I was a little boy, I kind of came out of the womb uh, notoriously bad. And so the old joke in our family was that I got in trouble twice as much as my two brothers did their entire life before the age of six. Uh, I've told this story, my mom would tell the story that I would go around and if there was a light socket, I would try to put my hand out and touch the light socket. My mom would gently slap my hand and then I would go and go to the next one. And she'd just have to follow me around the house. Another story, which is probably not acceptable in this modern times, but back then was perfectly acceptable, is I refused to stay in bed at night. I, I just refused. My, my twin brother and I wouldn't stay in bed, but I, I'm sure I was the instigator because that's who I was. And we'd come and we'd get up and we'd get down and we'd get up and my parents were at their wits end. So um, back then there was a bathroom right across from our door. So they started with the habit of tying the bedroom door by connecting it with the bathroom. And they would come in and walk down the hall and my fingers would be underneath the door and my dad would have to untie the door, gently push the door back, and put me in the bed. And I did that so much that one time my grandmother was visiting, and she said the weirdest thing. I was walking down the hall, and there's ten fingers sticking out underneath the door. And my parents were like, huh, I wonder how that happened. <laughs> I just, that's who I was. But an amazing thing happened when I was about six years old, and, and I was really young, and I know that that's unusual. But I was laying in bed one night, and I felt like I heard a voice. And so I went to my mom and said, Mom, I feel like someone's calling to me. And that night, I entered into a relationship with Jesus. And it changed me. Even though I, I'd gotten in trouble a lot before then, to the best of my recollection, I only got in trouble a few times after that my entire life. People would ask, what's different about Daniel? And the answer was Jesus. And sometimes you're sitting there going, okay, there's Saul's dramatic story and your dramatic story, but I don't feel like I have a dramatic story, and that's okay. Don't minimize your story as long as there is a story about how you understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. To look at more of that, we're going to study the life of Saul Paul. We heard the ending, spoiler, he comes to know Christ. But Saul starts the story in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. 
Saul agreed with putting him to death. That was Stephen. And on that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however, was ravaging the church. And he would enter after house after house, drag off men and women, and put them into prison. Great guy. But the story doesn't stop there. It goes on, and he continues on. And you got to understand, when he's talking about the synagogue, this would be like somebody coming in to a place like this with armed men and dragging out people, okay? That's what he was doing. In Acts 9, 1 through 2, it says, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way or followers of Jesus, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He was capturing, imprisoning, killing Christians. He was separating mothers from their children. He was taking men and dragging them to jail. This was not a good dude. Yet the story of Saul's conversion shows us how that Christ came for us all. The story of Saul's conversion shows us how Christ, if Christ could come for him, then surely he could come for me. Remember last week we talked about John 3.17, which is right after John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We like that verse. But John 3.17 says that God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to bring it to a new hope in Jesus. Now, as you understand that, here's what I want you to understand. You might sit there and go, Okay, but what does that have to do with me? Everything. Because just for a few moments this morning, I want us to really challenge our story. Because I think we're way more like Saul than we realize. Want further proof? Saul was highly educated in a school of theology. Woohoo! I mean, he went to the Purdue School of Theology. Theology? They taught better English than I did, and they only spoke Greek. So, as part of that, they went to this deep school of theology, and here was the slogan of the school that they went to. This was their mantra. This was their mission statement. The only wisdom to be prized is education of our laws and the correct interpretation of Scripture. Get that. The only wisdom to be prized is an education of our laws and the correct interpretation of Scripture. We are to know the Scripture, and we prize this. And in doing so, he misinterpreted the correct interpretation of Scripture and was going around and killing and capturing and enslaving Christians. You see, the reason Saul was so angry was because others were living against his deepest convictions. Mind you, These were convictions that he thought were doing led to the will of God. His interpretations of the law forgot one very important thing. It's about the relationship with God that matters. And I'm wondering today where you stand. Do you have a relationship with God like we we say we do? Or do we have a religion that we follow? You see, last week's daily training was to write out the following words. Today, I will seek and submit to God's will for my life. 
Today I will seek and submit to God's will for my life. Because if you're really following Jesus, then that's your goal. That's your hope. It's not about just living for the next life. It's, it's realizing that salvation is here and now and is for us all. But if we are not following God, even if we think we are, then we are likely pushing against God's will. We're likely pushing against His will. And that's a dangerous and a scary place to be. Because you can think you're following God and not be following God. In other words, how are you continuing your education in knowing how to follow Jesus? Do you feel like you understand everything already? Do you feel like you are coming to a place where you're willing to to challenge what you've always believed? Because I don't think there's anything wrong with skepticism in the coming of what is truth. Because if something is true, then it stands up against our questions and our doubts. Amen? If something is, is, is worth asking, it's worth pursuing, we need to find out if what we really believe is true and authentic. And if it is, it should give us cause to do everything for that. It's just not casual. But yet we all have fallen sinned and shall fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans 3.23 says. So we all fall short. We all have this story where we were messed up before Christ, but in the relationship we have, we are uh, given and afforded the opportunity to God to come back to Him. And here's the beautiful thing. God does not take the junk and the story of your past and sit there and say, I don't need that, because God has a way to take even the most misaligned views and recycling them for good. He takes Saul's story and uses it so how many thousands upon millions of people come to know Christ through the New Testament? By the way, Saul would later become Paul and write 13 books of the New Testament, or 12, depending on who you ask. But all of that, as you begin to unwrap that, God looks into your story and says, are you following me? Let that sink in. Are you following him? Let's pick up the story in Acts 9, 3 through 9. As Paul traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul. Dramatic effect. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Do you think, right? Hearing the sound but seeing no one. So Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him to Damascus and he was unable to see for three days and did not eat or drink. A few things about this passage. Um, A lot of times we sit there and go, okay, I'm on this journey to follow Christ. I'm on this journey to find Christ. Do you realize that Saul was blind for a few days before he actually knew where he was going? Do you think in those three days he was sitting there going, two days ago I could see, but I'm expecting something good? Do you think that in the course of the journey he had doubts about what was going to happen? Am I going to lose my life? Am I going to, where does this end? And I want you to see there is beauty in the struggle of the journey. 
There is a beauty in coming to the place where you sit there and go, okay, God, help me to see what you are trying to do. He was literally blind, and God was using the literal blindness of his life to show him how he was blind in other aspects of his life. And as he was walking through that journey, the answers he wanted, he did not quickly get. Be okay with the journey. But here's the cool part. God brings about it in a good way. We're going to come back to that again in a minute. So let's real quickly look at this. What are two things that can prohibit us from seeing Jesus correctly? Because Saul thought he was, right? What are two things? The first, we naturally assume that what we believe is correct. You know why I wanted to go around touching every light sock when I was just still a crawler? Because I knew that my mom didn't know what she was talking about. I can touch this light switch if I wanted to. And we as adults laugh at that, right? We go, <laughs> what a foolish little child. But in my mind, at a very early age, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. This is called sin. But a strange thing happens as an adult when we grow up with this mentality. We call it philosophy. Or opinions. Or facts that we know are right even though everything else says it's wrong. We naturally assume that we are right. Now, I want to speak to all the kids in the room for a second. Kids, I'm going to help you out. Your parents do not know everything. You should still listen to them. You should obey them, okay? But your parents do not know everything. And I'm going to help you out a little more. That when you're at the age of 40, realize that you will not fully understand how the world works. And if you do that, you will avoid what they call a midlife crisis. And you will not have to go buy a sports car or something even worse because you're going to think you should understand the way the world works. And when you don't, you're going to get frustrated and you're going to go do something really weird, okay? So when your parents don't know everything and they make a mistake, say, Mom and Dad, it's okay. Pastor Daniel told me that you wouldn't know everything, but just know that I love you. And they will be like, I love you. It'll be great moments, right? Now, kids can understand that. Adults, do you know you don't know everything? In fact, a lot of what the way you view the world is based on where you grow up. It's based on whether or not you're a man or a woman. It's based on the skin color you have. It's based on whether your parents were Republican or Democrat or independent. It's based on whether or not you grew up overseas or here. It's based on whether or not you've traveled a lot. A lot of your worldview, in other words, whether the way you view things as fact is determined by the way that you grew up. We need to understand that. And so what we're trying to do is not come to the conclusion where I know how everything should happen. But rather we're asking ourselves, God, what do I need to do? Because he is truth. Now the second thing, way we get misaligned, sounds very similar to the first. We not only naturally assume that what we believe is correct, we naturally assume that those who believe differently are wrong. Anybody? Say, Daniel, that's... That's very similar. I mean, the first one is very narcissistic. The second one is also very narcissistic, but it's different. And so in order to assume that you're right, when you're looking at other people, the way this works is, my mom believed this. Her mom believed this. Therefore, I believe it, and you're not telling me grandma's wrong. So you're wrong. The Holy Spirit's in me, 
And I, this is the conclusion I have. I haven't prayed about it, thought about it, or read the Bible, but I know the Holy Spirit's in me, so I'm right and you're wrong. Anybody? Okay, maybe, maybe we'll agree to that later. Or maybe you won't. That's the whole point. But part of this is unwrapping the fact that we need to continually learn and trust in God and be okay with the journey that God can reveal himself in our lives. There's a few other ways that we can look at this. And, and our way is, is trying to find our hope is in our salvation is in the relationship that we have with Jesus. It is about a relationship. Now here's where this gets dangerous. Sometimes people look for salvation in theological understanding. And theological is the study of God, right? Ology, study of, theos is God. The, theo, the study of God. We can look for our salvation in how much we know. Do you know that you can quote the scriptures? Good, so can Satan. Do you know that you can tell me, I know how to find the books in the Bible, even Obadiah, without looking at my phone, like with a real Bible. And I know Hesitations isn't really a real book. That's a trick pastors throw in to see if we know our Bible. Right? And I played Bible trivia at the age of seven. And I could tell you how many kings were in Judah. And I could tell you all about Esther's life. And I even know how to say Jerubbabel, which I didn't do well there. And it's possible that you may know more about the Bible than me and still not have a relationship with God. Because it's not just understanding that leads to a relationship. It's the relationship that matters. For we are saved by grace, not of our works, lest any man should boast. Or a woman. Our salvation is not in intellectual understanding. Shout out to, especially to the people who love the biblical memes. That's not how you save people. Amen? Salvation is also not found in social justice. <laughs> we going there this morning? Yes, we're going to go there because I want to say something very clearly. I think social justice matters. I think it's when the church rises up and does the acts that it's supposed to do, and we should stand in the line for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. We should stand up to racial injustice. We should stand up to sex slave trafficking. We should stand up against, you name it, there's a list of things I can come up with. Absolutely. Let's walk beside our brothers and sisters in their pain, and let's stand up for biblical truth. That is biblical that we care about justice. But our salvation is not in serving, and it's not in social justice. Our salvation and our hope is pointing people to Jesus because the only way that we actually get rid of the racial inequalities in this world is to have people actually follow Christ who is willing to give up his own rights, who's willing to give up his own life, who's willing to sacrifice himself for the benefit of all humanity and calls us to do the same. And so, yes, we stand up, but we also, while we stand up, we point people to Jesus. And we let the relationship that we have with him be the driving force which compels us to serve and to love our neighbors. Our salvation is not in serving people. So this means that you could have rocked babies in the nursery since the time you were born, which would be really hard to do. You could actually have gone out and you could be one of the biggest tithers of this church. 
You could go out and you could do amazing things that are biblical and godly and just and still not have a relationship with Jesus. And you can fool yourselves into thinking that by serving God, that equates to you living with God, and it does not mean the same. We serve because we know Him. And followers follow Jesus, and followers serve God and others, and followers share what they know, and followers give sacrificially because we know what we have received. Finally, salvation is not in tradition. It's not in the church grew up. It's not shaming the Pentecostals. Amen. Hallelujah. It's not sitting there and going, oh, the Episcopalians. Ooh. And it's sure not being non-denominational or Baptist. By the way, a little pet peeve of mine. The non-denominational church of America has a building where the non-denominational churches send their money. Think about that. So I sit there and go, okay, God can use all of these different ones, and why are we going to spend our time trying to prove that brothers and sisters who will be in eternity with us in heaven are wrong instead of pointing people to Jesus? Now, believe what you want to believe. No, that's not right. Believe what God says to believe. But in love, we can disagree. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you are with me. Period. Exclamation point. No question mark. Any other punctuation you want to throw in there, I'll figure it out. And so we look at these things, and we sit there and, okay, what does that even mean? My grandmother was a, this faith, and, but here's what I think you need to understand. You could have grown up in the same faith tradition of your family for generation after generation, and it does not make you saved. Our salvation comes by realizing that you and I were made in the dignity of God, that He has revealed Himself to us, and that He has offered us a relationship with Him, and that when Jesus died on the cross, He paid a way for you and I to connect with Him from now into eternity and from then on. And all we have to do is say, Jesus, you are my king. And the way that God speaks to us and shows us that this is the way is through two ways. General revelation and specific revelation. Real quick. General revelation is that which points us to Christ based on existence. Right? Creation. So this is the very idea that I don't have the faith to be an atheist. I don't. I don't have the faith to think that we just came from a mathematical improbability that came out of nothing that came out of a huge, big bang. When you throw two things together, does it ever form anything? No. There are some people who will say, quote, God used the big bang to create the world. We're not getting into that debate today. And here's what I would say. I don't really care. The point is, we're here, and if God created the world through a big bang, that's even a bigger mathematical improbability. Saludo. Good job, God. And with the rest of us, I would sit there and go, if he created the world and it's 6,000 years ago, which is kind of where I lean, but here's what I would say. The point is, God created. Can we get excited about that? Can we understand that he made you, and there is the fingerprints and a newborn baby, the smell of a newborn baby, right? And, and then, nobody think I'm creepy, and then the mountains and the grandeur and then all of these wonderful things that all declare God is real. But God doesn't leave it there. He gives us 
specific revelation. He gives us his words. And sometimes he will send a red-headed, broken-down, grammar-stricken pastor to stand before you to tell you that God wants to do something in your life and he wants to invite you into a relationship. And in that moment, your heart starts going like this and your palms start sweating and you're sitting there going, is this God speaking to me? And I would say, yes. He came for you. Will you walk with him? Now, my prayer this morning was against the spirit of confusion. Because I don't think getting people baptized at age 13, 22, 35, 42, 64, all over again and again does any good. But I do want to say this. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Or is your relationship here only? Then it's not a relationship. Is your relationship with your hands, your service only? Then it's not a relationship. Is it in word only? Then it's not a relationship. It's all of you. So how do I know? This week, I want you to do the daily training of writing out your story. So here's the daily training this week. I want you to write down your story reflecting on how you found or met Christ, encountered Christ, whatever you want to say. And the reason I want you to do that is because if it's a struggle with you, we want to talk you through it. We're not saying that if you can't write down your story, it doesn't mean that you aren't a Christian because we don't really know that. But I'd like to at least think if you can't write down your story, then you've probably never been discipled and you're a baby Christian and we want to walk beside you to help you know how to do it. So that's why we have Cy here to work with the student community. He's out there with the middle schoolers now. That's why we have Jordan to help you with the children's ministry. That's why we have Morgan and Drew and Jeff and Chris and other people, I'm forgetting, Amy, and uh, all these wonderful people to walk you through your story to make sure you know Jesus. And if you can't articulate your story, there's an issue there. How did you come to realize Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? How did you come to a place where you're willing to know him now and forevermore? Let me close with this other thought. The old saying goes, Dr. Robert Smith used to always say this in our preaching class. Impression without expression leads to depression. I'll say that again. Impression without expression leads to depression. So if you feel your hands starting to sweat and your heart beating and you don't express that, then you're going to be worse off. There's no staying the course. Now that you've heard the story, you're going to be better off or you're going to be worse off. The choice is yours. We're not trying to confuse you. We're not trying to sell you a used car. We are here because Jesus is the way and we want you to find peace and meaning and purpose and power and love and oh, it gets exciting. We're not going to push you. We want to show you Jesus. So would you do that this week? Would you try to write out your story? And if you can't, would you reach out to us? Because we'd love to walk you through it. And if you're in this room, we'd love for you to stop by the next steps space afterwards. If you're here for the college lunch, come grab me under the tent. We'll get some uh, panda. And uh, sorry, adults, it's not for you. Well, uh, college students are adults, don't we? 
people who know what Matlock is, it's not for you. All the concerts are going, what? <laughs> exactly. But we'd love to talk you through that. So God, would you come even now? Would you guard us and guide us and direct us? Would you help us to know who you are and what you're doing? We thank you for your presence. We pray, as I talked about a while ago, against the spirit of confusion. God, as the Bible says, though, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So God, may we fear missing out on you. And then may we long for that wisdom which says in James, if we ask for wisdom, you will grant it. So God, right now we are asking for your wisdom to give us clear discernment on our relationship with Christ and to make a life that's changed and lived for you so that we might give you glory and honor and praise that you are due. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray.